Have you ever wondered why we put so much emphasis on being here when the church assembles for worship? Uh, why is it that we come together anyway? What is the purpose of these gatherings? And why does it matter if you are a part of this? Why, why does it matter that you come to be a part of this? What, what's so important about worship anyway? That's what we want to discuss for a few minutes this morning. Uh, our worship, our coming together. What it, what's it for? What's the importance of it? Why should I care to be a participant in it? We're going to talk about that in just a moment. Before we get started into that, though, we stop here to say thank you for being here. We're going to talk about you being here today, but you obviously are, and we're glad that you're here, and we appreciate that everyone has made this a priority this morning. Thanks for coming. We have visitors today. We're glad that you have come our way, and we hope you come back every time you have a chance. We're always open to your questions about what we're doing, what we're teaching. Uh, if you have any questions at all, please ask. We'd be glad to be of help to you in any way that we can. Thanks for being here this morning. The book of Hebrews is where we're going to be this morning, and you may want to turn there. We're going to be especially looking in chapter 10. The book, in the book of Hebrews, the, the writer has spent the majority of the first ten chapters talking about Jesus and the superiority of Jesus' sacrifice and his priesthood. And the Hebrew writer sort of contrasting Jesus and what we experience through the blessings of Christ in contrast with the way things used to be in Old Testament times under the law of Moses. And so the Hebrew writer speaks of this new system and the superiority of the new system that we have. And then, as the last half of chapter 10 unfolds, he begins to call to action. Uh, we want to look at this text uh, in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. Read it again with me. This is the same text that Nathan read for us just a few minutes ago, but read it again. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say his flesh, and having an high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled with from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised, and let us consider one another to provoke unto love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. So our question again is, what is so critically important concerning the fact that servants of God assemble together with others of like precious faith? I believe here in this familiar text, the Hebrew writer gives us three reasons, and all three reasons are going to begin with this statement, let us. And so those will be the three points that we try to emphasize in our lesson this morning. And the very first let us reason is because worship is a privilege. He starts out by talking about having boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. And I want you to think again with me about the holiest under the Old Testament system of things. We remember that the way the tabernacle was set up and then later the temple, there was an outer court, but as you entered into the tabernacle or temple proper, you entered first into the holy place. Uh, in the holy place was the 
table of showbread, uh, the altar of incense, the, the candlestick, and the holy place. But there was a veil, and in in, as, as you entered in, in the back there was a veil. You couldn't go beyond that. You couldn't see beyond that. But beyond that veil was where the Ark of the Covenant rested, and the, God's mercy seat above the, the Ark of the Covenant. The holiest place was representative of the very presence of God. Now, you had to be a priest to even get in the holy place, but you had to be the high priest in order to go to the holiest or most holy place. But even the high priest could only go there once a year on the Day of Atonement. And so, the holiest or most holy place, indicative of God's very presence, but not very accessible. You can't go there. Average people can't go there at all. Only one man in the whole nation of Israel could go there, and he could only go there one day a year, only the high priest on the Day of Atonement. And so that was a, a really a special place. But now we have boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. Now he's saying there is an invitation for us all to come before God. And so he says, let us... Draw near with a true heart. And so, the invitation is for us. Uh, uh, the expression, draw near, let us draw near with a true heart. Draw near, when, when a priest came to offer sacrifices or to burn incense uh, under the Old Testament system, it was, a, it was called a coming near or an approaching Look, look, look with me in Leviticus chapter 21. In Leviticus 21 at verse 17, Speak unto Aaron, saying, Whosoever he be of thy seed in their generations that hath any blemish, let him not approach to offer the bread of his God. He couldn't approach, he couldn't draw near if there was some blemish in this individual. Look at verse 21. No man that hath a blemish of the seed of Aaron the priest shall come nigh to offer the offerings of the Lord made by fire, he hath a blemish. He shall not come nigh to offer the bread of his God. And so, drawing near or approaching, that was an expression that was used on behalf of the priest when they came to make their sacrifices, uh, to do their service uh, in the temple. It was a very exclusive thing, as we said, this drawing nigh. But notice here, that we have a standing invitation. Because of Jesus' work on our behalf, we have a standing invitation to draw near. That's really significant. And we want to point out, therefore, that this coming together that we do should be viewed as a privilege for us. Back under the Old Testament system, only a handful of people could do anything in the temple, and only the high priest himself could go into the most holy place this is really special. And so one of the reasons why we should worship is because we ought to view it as a privilege. Let us draw near with a true heart. I want, you, I want to stop here for just a minute to talk about a, a question that is sometimes asked. Sometimes little children ask this question, but unfortunately sometimes those who are much older also ask the question, they ask, do we have to? Do we have to go to church? I remember our kids, when they were very little, would ask that question, you know, do we have to go to church? 
And we try to answer that to encourage them about the privilege of worship. But unfortunately, there are those who are older, even those who identify as Christians, and they're asking that same question that little kids sometimes ask. Do we have to go? You know the problem with that is? The problem is those people who are asking that question don't realize or appreciate the privilege that worship is. We can draw near to God in worship. He invites us to come, draw near with a true heart. The other day, Cindy made some peach cobbler, and she served it to us still warm with ice cream. Warm peach cobbler with ice cream. Do I have to eat that? Wouldn't that be a crazy question to ask? Who would ask that question? Uh, one peach cobbler with ice cream. Oh boy, what a privilege. Right? That's the way we need to view worship, but even more so, of course. It is a privilege. We don't have to. We are privileged to be able to come together to worship God. So let us worship God. Let us draw near with a true heart. Worship is a privilege. But let me suggest to you that also worship helps us to hold fast. Uh, notice here, let us hold fast the profession of our faith. Uh, do it without wavering, he said. Hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering. I want to tell you, it's easy to lose your grip spiritually. We need to be hanging on, but it's easy to lose your grip. Actually, though, it's always been that way. It's always been a challenge to remain faithful. Interesting, right here in the book of Hebrews, the Hebrew writer mentions that several times in the early chapters. Uh, in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1, we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. I think newer versions use the word drift, lest we drift away. It's possible to slip. It's possible to drift away. We need to give the more earnest heed. In chapter 3, at verse 12, Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. We can depart from God. In chapter 4, at verse 11, Let us labor, therefore, to enter into that rest, lest any man fall. After the same example of unbelief, you can fall. You can fall away. In chapter 6, verse 12, Be not slothful, but followers of them who through faith and patience inherit the promises. We can be slothful. And so, uh, this repeated statements in the book of Hebrews, and of course plenty of other places too, that tell us that we could be in danger, that our salvation is in jeopardy if we don't pay close attention, if we don't hang on. And so, here, the Hebrew writer suggests that one of the things that we gain by worship is that it helps us to hold fast. Can you, be, can you imagine being stranded somewhere in the news with some frequency? We hear about people who maybe got up in the mountains and a big snowstorm hit and they got off the road and they got stranded and lost. Or maybe a hiker on a long hike gets off the trail and gets lost. Uh, of course, there's always the classic example of a shipwreck and someone ends up on a deserted island. I mean, in any number of scenarios, you're stranded. Can you imagine being stranded and be alone? Man, that'd be really hard to take, wouldn't it? Being stranded, for whatever reason, and alone, 
would be a great chance. It would be so easy to give up if you were stranded and alone. But take the same scenario and you're stranded, but in this instance you're with one or more other people. Don't you agree with me that the other people would be a source of strength to you? You could hold on longer, even under bad circumstances, if you had somebody else with you in that stranded situation. Well, that's the idea here. It's a tough world that we live in. There are all kinds of temptations out there. I mean, they are incredibly and powerfully strong. We're tempted. We're also persecuted. I don't know, we're not, we agree, we're not persecuted like maybe others who've gone before us. Certainly not like those Christians of the first century. Many who gave their lives, many who were imprisoned. We're not in persecution like that, but there's a persecution that comes to those who try to live faithfully for the Lord. It's a tough world. It's hard to hang on. But I want to tell you something. When I assemble together with other Christians, I realize that I'm not alone. I'm not in this alone. You're not in this alone. We have one another. And there's a strength that comes from that. And so when we assemble, it helps us. It helps me to hold on. It helps me to keep on keeping on. And so, that's a valuable reason why we worship. We worship because it's a privilege to approach God in, in this way. But we also worship because we get a lot out of it. Personally, it helps us to maintain faithfulness to God. But let me suggest to you also that worship is an important way to encourage others. So our previous point was, I get a lot out of it. But this point has to do with that I can help others also by coming together to worship. We encourage our brethren. I, I'll tell you, one of mankind's biggest problems, and I think one of mankind's ugliest traits, is the idea of selfishness. So often we look at things with the question, what's in it for me? But the Lord asks us to look beyond ourselves in lots of ways. And in regards to worship, He wants us to look beyond ourselves and think of others. Notice, he says, let us consider one another to provoke unto love and good works. And so another reason that I should want to assemble is not just for what I get out of it, but for what I can offer to others in the course of worship. I can encourage them. Worship is an important means of doing that. We can consider one another to provoke to love and good works. We can exhort one another, he says. That's really special. That's important. And I need to think of that. It's interesting that he contrasts that with forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. So we ought to consider one another. We ought to exhort one another. And that's contrasted here with not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. Forsaking the assembly would be the opposite of exhorting my brethren, right? And so the suggestion is that I'd actually be discouraging my brethren if I forsook the assemblies. Do you see it in those words? I think it's pretty straightforward. The word forsaking here is a pretty strong word. Uh, it literally means to leave in the lurch or to neglect, to be negligent or rem remiss in duty. And that's the word that the Hebrew writer by inspiration uses here. We forsake the assembly. It, just, it doesn't mean just to not be there. It carries with it the weight of 
I am leaving you in the lurch if I'm not in the assemblies. I am being negligent. I am being remiss in my duty. It's not just not being there. It's that I'm actually doing something horribly negative by not being there. I'm not thinking of you. I'm not considering you. I'm not encouraging you. If I purposely choose to miss the assemblies, I'm leaving you in the lurch. I'm being negligent in regards to my duty toward you. I need to fulfill my duty. I need to exhort you. And that's an important reason why I need to be in the assemblies, and you do too. How would you feel? Think of it this way. How would you feel if I promised that I would help you with some really big job that needed to be done around your place. So you have this really big job that needs to be done. And I said, you can count on me. I'll be there. I'll help you with that. Whatever needs to be done, I'll be there. And then when it came time to do it, I didn't show up. How would you feel about that? Uh, you got to admit, you wouldn't feel very good about that, right? You'd feel like I'd let you down. Because I promised to do something and then I didn't follow through with the doing of it. I'll tell you, that's what we've got right here. We've got a situation where I made a commitment. I committed to God, but I also committed to my brethren that I would be there to help and encourage you. I would be considerate of you. I would exhort you. But then I forsook the assembling. I let you down. I left you in the lurch. That's a serious thing. We all need to think about that. One of the very important aspects of our coming together is because in worship we encourage our brethren. Let me finally suggest to you that we absolutely need to be careful not to neglect this important responsibility. Again, I draw your attention to not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as we were just mentioning. But notice this, as the manner of some is. You get the idea that this problem existed even back there in the early church, right? There were some Christians who were in the habit of neglecting the assembling of the saints. And so, I guess what we see in that is that this has always been a problem. Uh, but I want to tell you something. While it is apparent from the statement here that there were some who were thus negligent, who neglected their assembling... There were a lot of Christians of that first century time period who went to great lengths to be able to assemble. I don't know if you saw an article in the bulletin just two or three weeks ago in which we talked about the, the historical information we have about Christians who assembled in the city of Rome. Persecution was intense, and Rome was sort of a seat of some of that intense persecution against Christians. And so history tells us that Christians would have to meet in secret places. They couldn't meet openly, and so they had to meet in secret places. And you may well be aware of the meetings that took place in the catacombs. The catacombs were underground burial places. And so Christians would actually go to those underground cemeteries or burying places to be able to assemble without being seen or because they, they would be violently opposed if they tried to assemble openly. It's also said that various family members who were going to the assemblies would have to leave at different times 
and they would have to go in different directions in order to get to those secret meeting places so they could assemble. Well, why? Why would they go to that much trouble? Some were forsaking the assemblies, obviously, but others were working really hard to be in the assemblies of the saints. Why would they do that? Well, obviously they did that because they had a deep and strong commitment to the Lord and to His work. Let me ask you a question. Which of those people would you like to be like? Would you like to be like these people? There were some who were in the habit of forsaking the assembling. Who would you like to be identified with? That group that is forsaking the assembly, leaving others in the lurch, as we said. Or would you like to be counted among the number of those who went to all kinds of extreme measures in order to be able to assemble together with fellow Christians? Which number do you want to be in? What's the level of your commitment? How do you see that? Obviously, our point here is we need to be careful not to neglect the assembling of ourselves together. Of course, Hebrews 10, verse 25 is one of the most familiar verses of Scripture because we reference it so often. Uh, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner some is, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Let us be faithful, worshiping God. Let us worship. It's a privilege. It helps us. In the process, we help others. We need to be careful not to forsake that which we are assigned to do. Thanks, to your, thanks for your good attention to what we've had to say. I hope it's an encouragement to us all. We do this all the time, don't we? You know, we, we? We come here every Lord's Day. We come on Sunday morning. We come on Sunday night. We come on Wednesday evening for Bible study. Why are we doing all that? Well, hopefully we've kind of addressed the answers to that question by looking at this familiar Bible text. Thanks for your good attention to what I've had to say. We've not talked this morning about God's plan for our salvation or what we must do in order to be saved. But we wouldn't want to end the lesson without providing the opportunity for those who are here. If you understand the truth and you desire to become a child of God today, upon hearing His truth and believing it, repenting of your sins, confessing your faith in Jesus, being baptized for the remission of sins, if we can help you in that obedience, we'd be anxious to do so. All things are in readiness. If you need more information or more study, just say a word. We'd be glad to study with you. If you're a Christian, but you've fallen back and not been faithful to the Lord, we urge you to come back in repentance, confession, and prayer. If we can help, let us know while we stand and sing.